uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. After you've found Hebrews 10 in your Bible, stand with me. Let's honor the Word. Let's read it together. Well, the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. And in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again just for the awesome privilege of being able to gather in your name to um, have your word, uh, to have your Holy Spirit that uh, illumines the truth of your word to our hearts and minds. Lord, what a joy it is to have the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray this morning as we worship, as we give thanks, as we um, focus on uh, you and your will, your word to us. Lord, we just pray that that would be so clear. And Lord, we pray that if there's anyone in our midst today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would come to know you today and in that capacity. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we observe the Lord's Supper at the end of the service, that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would help us to be pleasing in your sight as we Remember your sacrifice as we consider the cross, as we think about uh, that once-for-all permanent sacrifice for sin, that we would uh, give thanks, that we would, with grateful hearts, worship you with sincere hearts of gratitude and praise. 
So, Lord, help us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we started through this passage last week. We didn't get very far. I hope to make better time this morning. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, concludes the central theological argument of Hebrews that speaks of the superiority of Christ's high priesthood and atoning work. This section concludes the author's comparison of the two priesthoods. This is the culmination of the discussion of Jesus, the Son of God, as our great high priest. And some have pointed to this passage as the highest peak of this book. It is certainly the conclusion of the central theological section of the book. This will be followed then by an exhortation to respond in light of these doctrinal truths. And we got through the first main point in our outline last time, which is the ineffectiveness of the shadow. That's verses 1 through 4. In those first four verses, we again saw that the old covenant system is ineffective in providing access to God. It is only the shadow, not the substance. It had no ability to cleanse the conscience of sinners. And the decisive conclusion of this section is the law cannot make perfect the sinner. It was never intended to. It was only the shadow of the form of the good things to come, which is the new covenant. And I won't go back over all that this morning, but I want to move on now to a second element that we see in this passage, and that is the incarnation of the Son. And we see that in verses 5 through 10. Look with me at verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Notice the phrase, when he comes into the world. That is speaking of his incarnation. He talks about the body that God the Father prepared for him in his incarnation. On the other hand, he also addresses the nature of sacrifices in general. And he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired. And continuing verse 6, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. It's really like there are two sentences intertwined here. One dealing with the incarnation of Christ, and the other dealing with the nature of sacrifices. But the point that the Bible makes about sacrifices is that there is always an internal requirement, not just an external ceremony. Even under the Old Covenant, God expected the people to offer their sacrifices with a right heart. And we see this in many places in Scripture, such as Amos 5, 21-23, which says, I hate, I reject your festivals, 
nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Why did God say that to them? Because they were not bringing their offerings, their sacrifices, with the right heart. It had become empty ritual to them. It had become simply a meaningless external. And going back to Hebrews 10.5, when he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, he's really talking about the fact that mere external ceremonies can never change the inner man. And what God has desired all along is to make us new on the inside. The Old Testament ceremonies could point to that, but they could not produce that. Empty rituals were not the kind of sacrifices and offerings that God desired. They never are. If there is not a sincere change of heart and nature, the symbols really are meaningless. John MacArthur writes, the people had taken what was meant to be a symbol of real faith and used it as a substitute for faith. Their trust was in the outward form. It came to be seen as a form of magic, wherein the prescribed words and actions automatically produced the desired results. Now, we know that God himself, instituted the old covenant sacrificial system but it was intended to be an expression of obedience and genuine devotion to god not just an empty ritual and that's why samuel said to king saul to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams To just go through the motions of the sacrifice without obedience and devotion to God was and is hypocrisy. And in essence, that's really worse than not even offering the sacrifice at all. In Psalm 51, David described the only kind of sacrifice that was acceptable to God during the Old Testament era. He said... The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. Even under the Old Covenant, when sacrifices were not offered with the right heart, they could not even cover sin temporarily because they would be rejected by God and they would even lose the value of their uh, symbolism. I mean, just listen to the way the prophet Isaiah describes it. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. 
When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? You can just hear that strong language. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbath and calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. All their religious ceremonies were worthless because they were not living in such a way that was pleasing to God. They were not coming with the right hearts. Their hearts, their attitudes were not right. They were uh, full of sin and compromise. And therefore, the sacrifices that they brought had even become an abomination to God. He would not accept their offerings. So going back to Hebrews 10.5, we see what kinds of sacrifices and offerings God has no delight in. He does not desire empty religion. He has no pleasure in mere external ceremonies apart from obedience and genuine devotion to him. But he also alludes in verse 5 to our Lord's incarnation. He says, but a body you have prepared for me. He says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Now, this statement concerning the incarnation is from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. This psalm is attributed to David, but it cannot refer to David himself. It must refer to David's greater son. It must refer to Jesus Christ. In fact, what we have in this psalm is really the pre-incarnate voice of the Son of God. The person speaking in this psalm cannot be the psalmist. It must be the second person of the Trinity. F.F. Bruce says, the Septuagint reading, you have fashioned a body for me, suggests to our author the incarnation of the Son of God, and the whole passage from Psalm 40 is understood as spoken by him at his coming into the worlds. The psalm itself is summarized in the words, I have come to do your will, O God. The incarnation itself was an act of submission to the will of the Father. And the ultimate act of submission to the divine will, of course, was Jesus' death on the cross. In fact, this is one of the main reasons why the sacrifice of Christ was superior to all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The ultimate sacrifice of Christ was God's will all along. This was the divine plan to atone for sin even before the world began. And this is reflected in verse 5 in the fact that God the Father 
prepared a body for the Son. God the Father prepared in advance the body of His incarnation. And here's the kicker. As the Son was standing on the edge of heaven, as it were, ready to become incarnated and take on human flesh, it was understood, even at that time, that his body would become the sacrifice that was necessary to atone for sin. And the ultimate mission of the Son in coming to earth was to do the will of God. His submission to that will was perfect. His obedience to that will led him to live a sinless life. Satan was unable to tempt him and divert him from accomplishing that will. And ultimately, his submission to that will resulted in his going to the cross and winning our salvation. He willingly went to the cross to become the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Why did Jesus enter the arena of human history? It was because animal sacrifices could never remove sin completely and perfectly and affect a right relationship with God. Animal sacrifices couldn't cut it. What the law, though, could never provide, God provided in his Son. But this passage makes it clear that this was the Father's plan for the Son all along. By the way, you might have a translation that reads in verse 5, Ears you dug for me. Most translations have a body you have prepared for me, but it is the difference between the Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts. O'Brien explains that the Greek translator may have understood the original as an instance of a part standing for the whole. Digging or hollowing out of the ears is part of the total work of fashioning a human body. And so the wording differs slightly. There's one more detail from verses 5 through 7 that might be helpful to you. The phrase in parentheses in verse 7, in the role of the book, it is written of me, literally makes reference to the head of the book. It probably referred to the knob at the top of the rod that the scroll was rolled on. And since the scroll represents the Word of God, this probably is saying that Christ came as the centerpiece and ultimate fulfillment of God's Word. But let's go on to verses 8 and 9. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. In verses 8 and 9, he goes back over Psalm 40, and then he adds this commentary. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. 
Again, the author of Hebrews is hammering home the truth that the old covenant was never sufficient to deal with sin. As John MacArthur writes, it was not meant to be permanent or truly effective, only temporary and symbolic. God's focus was always on the second covenant, the superior covenant. And listen, the truth of the matter is, you can't live under two covenants at the same time. So in order for the second to be established, the first one had to be done away with. And whatever purpose the first one had, which it did have a purpose, it has now been fulfilled. Whatever authority the first one originally had, it has now been superseded by the second. That means the old covenant no longer has a purpose, and therefore God has set it aside. The word for takes away literally means to abolish. Hear me and hear me well. The old covenant has been completely abrogated. God has forever taken it away. For all these people who are still trying to hang on to the trappings of the old covenant, it is no longer valid. The first covenant has been abolished to make room for the second. And of course, for the original hearers of this sermon, the message was to let go of the remnants of Judaism and turn to Christ. But today it's different. Today we have the Seventh-day Adventists. We have other groups that are still trying to hold on to the old covenant. But why would anyone cling to that when something as superior as the new covenant is here. One commentator called this a revolutionary principle because it emphasizes the division of the two epics. We are no longer in the old covenant dispensation. We are now in the new. And everything connected with the symbolism of the old covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. The law has been replaced by the gospel of grace. The one perfect, final, and complete sacrifice has replaced the nonstop, imperfect, temporary sacrifices. The priesthood is gone. The temple is gone. God has taken away the first in order to establish the second. And verse 10 is the clincher. Look at it. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The will of God is that we would be sanctified by his, Jesus Christ, once for all offering of himself. And God the Father prepared a body for his incarnation, and he offered that body on the cross as a perfect, once-for-all sacrifice. The word for sanctified here is equivalent to justified in the book of Romans. This has to do with securing our eternal salvation. The sacrifice of Christ accomplished what no animal sacrifice could ever accomplish It sanctified the believer and made him holy 
The old system had no way of doing that. But the new covenant accomplishes this by imputing the righteousness of Christ to the believer by saving faith. And the Greek word for sanctified there is hagiadzo. It means to be set apart. We get the word saint from that word. Biblically, this is really a synonym for a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Listen, sainthood is not something that is conferred on someone by the church after they are dead. It is the fact, forensically and actually true, for all who are saved here and now. Every genuine believer in Jesus Christ has already become a saint. They have been set apart for God and are right now perfectly righteous in the sight of God. And of course, as we have seen, the Bible teaches that God not only wants us to be sanctified positionally, but he also wants us to be sanctified practically. We are holy positionally the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ to save us eternally. But God wants us also to become holy in a practical way as we grow in grace and Christ's likeness. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, This is the will of God, your sanctification. The desire of God for us is expressed in 1 Peter 1, 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God wants us to reflect His holiness. He wants us to be separate from the world. Now, that's what progressive sanctification is all about. But Hebrews 10.10 is referring to positional sanctification. In Christ, we are made completely holy. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ credited to our account by faith. John MacArthur says... Regardless of how holy our walk may be, in our standing, we are completely and permanently set apart unto God if we have trusted in the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By the way, the key phrase in that verse is once for all. The problem of sin has now been dealt with permanently and completely through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That means no other sacrifice is needed. No other work is needed. We can't add anything to his perfect sacrifice for sin. We can't add any human works to that. His offering of himself on the cross was totally sufficient once and for all to save us eternally. So we have the ineffectiveness of the shadow. We have the incarnation of the Son. Thirdly, we have the implications of the sacrifice. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. This, these two verses contain uh, several contrasts. 
The old covenant could not permanently remove sin, but the new covenant can and does. And the contrast is from the never-ending sacrifices to the one sacrifice. It is from the ineffective sacrifices to a perfectly effective sacrifice. It is from the priests that never finished their work to the one who sat down because his work was complete. It went from hundreds and thousands of priests to one supreme priest. And this stark contrast is highlighted by the phrase, but he, or as the King James have it, has it, but this man. What the old system was never able to do, this man was able to do. And here the author of Hebrews brings back in Psalm 110, which is the most prominently cited Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. And we've already seen it referred to in this book three times. But now he employs it to demonstrate the decisive final nature of the son's sacrifice. The first part of this has to do with the fact that this great high priest has taken his seat of authority at the right hand of God the Father. But then in verse 13, we see the second aspect of this psalm, that this will be his position until his enemies are fully and finally conquered. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15:25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. I mean, look at Hebrews 10:13. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. George Guthrie writes, for Hebrews this truth demonstrate that 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 the son's sacrifice was completely satisfactory never needing to be repeated. Verse 13 is really speaking of the time of his second coming. Nothing else needs to be done in regard to his atoning work, so he waits for the day now when all his enemies become a footstool for his feet. Now, the enemies are not identified here, but in general terms, we would have to conclude that this would uh, include... Every power that resists God's gracious, redemptive purpose. His ultimate enemy is Satan. So here is another contrast between the first and second covenant. All of the sacrifices of the old covenant could never do anything to get rid of Satan. But the atoning work of Christ sealed his doom. And at his second coming, we will see Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And then in the millennial state, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Really, there is a sense in which we would have to say that Jesus' death on the cross dealt a death blow to the enemies of Christ. And we've already seen in Hebrews 2.14 that he conquered him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Colossians 2 tells us that he has triumphed over all the fallen angels, all the demons. 
There's coming a day when this will be fully consummated. He's now waiting for that day when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And according to Philippians 2.10, they will all acknowledge him as Lord of all. And, of course, we would have to add to that all those men who have refused to acknowledge him as Lord. This will certainly include all the nations of the earth that will come against him at the Battle of Armageddon. But, in fact, all throughout history, there have been enemies of the cause of Christ. All those who have put to death the Lord's saints. All those who have burned God's holy word. All those who have cried out in godless defiance against his truth. These also will one day fall down before him and acknowledge his lordship. There is coming a day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. One author wrote, It matters not what the papers may report. It matters not what the historians record. Our earth is moving inevitably toward a final victory for Jesus Christ when every enemy will be under his feet. He will be King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. Oh, but please understand, you do not have to wait until that day when you are in judgment forced to confess him as Lord. You can confess him as Lord now and never have to face his judgment. You can bow your knee to him here today and receive his free gift of eternal life. You can join the winning team today. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light through faith in him. Someday, all of his enemies will become a footstool for his feet. But what you need to do today is make sure you're not among his enemies. You need to make sure that you're among his saints, not his enemies. Well, let's go on in verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, we've already spent time on this. But this is speaking of those whom he saves eternally. He has provided that salvation by one perfect sacrifice. And those who are sanctified are perfected for all time. The word perfected is in the Greek present tense there, which means this is something that began in the past and continues on into the present. It began at the cross where he perfected us, but it continues even today. And the phrase for all time indicates that it continues also on into the future. In fact, the testimony of Scripture is that it will last forever. The salvation that God grants will never end. But there's one last thing that we see in this passage and that is the instruction of the Spirit. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, 
I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Of course, this is a description of the new covenant. This is from Jeremiah 31. This is a promise of the Holy Spirit of God. But what we have to understand here is that this is not new revelation. This comes from the prophet Jeremiah. So it's as if the author of Hebrews is really saying here to his Jewish audience, it is impossible for you to accept the teaching of your beloved prophet Jeremiah and at the same time reject what he clearly said about the coming of the new covenant. In other words, you can't accept one without the other. If you accept Jeremiah, then you must accept the one of whom he prophesied. You must accept the Lord Jesus Christ. The perfection, the sanctification that the author of Hebrews is talking about is bound up in the new covenant. And this is made clear from his quote of Jeremiah 31. But notice that last phrase, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's from Jeremiah 31, 34. This is also part of the new covenant. Here is the promise of the Spirit that our sins will be remembered no more. And of course, we know that God is omniscient. So this does not mean that God literally forgets something. What it means is that he willfully chooses not to remember it in the sense of not holding our sins against us. The concept of not remembering is paralleled with the uh, biblical idea of forgiveness. Guthrie says when the scripture says to us that God forgets our sins, what it means is that God forgives us completely stamping our sins as having been dealt with. And that leads us then to the summary verse, verse 18. Look at it with me. Now, where there is forgiveness of sins of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. If all of our sin and lawless deeds have been forgiven by God, there's no need for any further sacrifice. There's no need for us to think that we can somehow add something to Christ's finished work. The perfect offering for sin has already been made. Full forgiveness is available to anyone who will put their faith in this perfect sacrifice. And so the application is clear. Why would anyone ever go back to the old sacrifice? Why would anyone ever go back to that which is imperfect and ineffective? Why would anyone put their faith in external religious rituals instead of Christ, the shadow instead of the substance? You know, there's something about human nature that leads us to think that we have to contribute something. You know, that we have to in some way earn our salvation. In fact, most religions involve some form of doing something for God. 
The vast majority of people today think that they must make some kind of sacrifice themselves in order to win the favor of Almighty God. But listen, at the core of Christianity is the truth that God himself has done something for us that we could never do. Something we could never earn. He has done it for us. God has done something for us through the sacrifice of his son we could never, ever do ourselves. I'll close with this true account. A woman named Donna Nusa lay in her casket, killed in a car accident the day before. Her son, Cesar, her daughter, other relatives, and a young woman named Carmelita stood nearby. Tall and dark, Carmelita was dressed this day in simple clothing. The young woman from the interior of Brazil had been adopted into Donna Nusa's family more than two decades earlier. At that time, she was seven years old and an orphan, the product of a prostitute and an unnamed father. Moved by compassion, Donna Nusa intervened, taking little Carmelita into her family. When almost everyone else had left the funeral chapel, Carmelita stayed behind, weeping quietly at the side of the casket. Earnestly, tenderly, she leaned over the coffin of her adopted mother, caressing it gently. And then she voiced her final goodbye. Obrigada, obrigada. Thank you. Thank you. Donna Nusa had reached out and given Carmelita a life that the little orphan had no ability to craft for herself. Pure grace. And in the same way, we should weep for the forgiveness, the everlasting life, is that which we could never win for ourselves. Our sins have been taken away, not because of anything we have done, but by the undeserved grace of God. The sacrifice Christ made on our behalf is absolutely sufficient. It is once for all time, there is nothing that can ever be added to it. Praise his name. Let's pray together. Father, we pray today that you would help us just to firmly grasp these truths. What incredible truths that we have of our perfect Lord Jesus and his perfect sacrifice, his once for all sacrifice for sin. And his atoning work was absolutely sufficient. There's nothing we can ever add to that. And Lord, I pray that that would be clear to each and every person today. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, my prayer is that they would do that today. 
But Lord, help all of us to respond with incredible gratitude, understanding the awesome, the awesome sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And help us to live for Christ as a result. So Lord, bless now as we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.